WBZ original. Do you have something to say about that? Oh, I have so much to say and no place to say it. And no, it's not. No, don't, I'm just joking, but. Somebody I, said it was a chair. I so begged it. Yeah. I've heard. Welcome to Studio BZ, everybody. Austin's number one podcast this week before Thanksgiving. We are at season four, episode seven. I'm Paula Evan. And I'm John Keller. Hi, Paula. Happy Thanksgiving Hi. in advance. Thanksgiving in advance. Getting excited about it. It's just you and me. Uh, uh, yeah, Liam will be joining Liam us later. Liam will be joining us a yeah. little bit later on for this yeah. greeting. But what is your favorite thing about Thanksgiving? I, you know, getting together with family without a whole lot of pressure. Mm. You know, uh, around Christmas in my sure. house we celebrate Hanukkah. No but there's gifts. a lot of pressure. Gifts, uh, the end of the year. Mm-hmm. It just seems more stressful. Thanksgiving is so mellow. I really, I really love it. It's mellow and it's all about food. You sort of spend all day enjoying the preparation of it. Yep. Yes, yeah, sitting and watching football. People are cooking. It's cozy and relaxing. There's and no then at the holiday. end of the day, relaxing on the couch, maybe working yes. up to a little Eric Swalwell moment. You <laughs> oh, jeez. <know>. <laughs> we'll leave, just working leave that where that it is. Working on pilgrim sandwich about 8 o'clock at night. But speaking so of what's on politicians, well, uh, uh, of course, the, the big local news recently, Deval Patrick running for president. Mm-hmm. And Paula, you uh, had a, a very smart idea to sit down with someone who knows what it's like to run with Deval Patrick. So I drove right out to Worcester and sat down with former Lieutenant Governor Tim Murray, who is now, of course, President and CEO of the Worcester Chamber of Commerce, because I thought, yeah, who would have a better insight into this whole situation than his running mate and the man who served with him had a little crisis uh, with him. And so you'll hear uh, what Tim Murray has to say about that. And then uh, when you think of attention deficit disorder, maybe you think of uh, uh, problems, uh, of something very negative, but... Uh, Liam has a conversation with a local doctor who has a very, very different take. He suggests ADHD can be a superpower of sorts, so that's coming up. We have that, and when Liam rejoins us, we will discuss how, as the headline is written here, gingerbread brings out the worst in people. Oh, my God. Uh, There has been this... um, idea to have a gingerbread contest, a gingerbread house making contest. Whoever had that idea should be fired. Our brilliant social media manager, Allison Dodek. Okay, I Uh, take that back. The first one last year. And let me just say for the record, Liam and I were victorious and finished in first place. We know. Liam is very adamant that this happened again. Yeah. Yeah, the, so uh, we'll get his take on uh, this year's contest. Remember well. the scene from the movie Anchorman where all the news teams uh, started attacking each other with swords and guns and flamethrowers? It, it's sort of a scene like that around here when we hit gingerbread season. I have the trident. Liam has the chains. <laughs> it's going to be great. That escalated quickly. So, John, as soon as I heard that former Governor Deval Patrick was entering the race for president in 2020, I immediately thought of Tim Murray and uh, talking to him. But you covered the entire arc of his career here in Massachusetts. What do you think about Patrick for president? Well, I'll just say this. He, if he had gotten in uh, a year ago when he was publicly considering it, I think it might be a much more serious or, or doable uh, task here. Uh, I think anyone who's followed Patrick's rise from nowhere 
to the governorship, serving mm-hmm. two terms as only uh, the second uh, African-American governor in American history, uh, recognizes he's a man of tremendous gifts, uh, political, rhetorical, and so forth. Uh, but uh, now, uh, you know, you never say never. I learned this in mm, the we all learned in this. the fall of 2003 when I wrote off John Kerry's bid for the Democratic nomination as a total loser, and of course he proceeded to win the nomination. So you never say never, but in this case, I would say probably never. Probably uh, the, it's, he's too late. Uh, his brand that he's bringing to this kind of sort of the Mr. Rogers of the Mm -hmm. race uh, does not seem a good fit with the times. I don't Mm -hmm. see a lane for him, particularly with Pete Buttigieg already running strong. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, uh, this whole atmosphere of being uh, um, surrounded by wealthy cronies, being the voice of business and of reason. Uh, I don't really see where that fits into the democratic universe Well, it's very interesting what Tim Murray says that most politicians do that Deval Patrick never does. Creativity combined with innovations in technology. Let's talk about your former political partner, your running mate, Deval Patrick. What was your initial reaction when you heard he's in? Uh, well, when he called, uh, you know, certainly there had been rumors and speculation, but I told him that I was proud of him, and uh, I think that he's got a lot to offer. Um, he's a proven two-term governor who's worked in the public sector, private sector, who is a phenomenal listener, um, but also someone who can articulate a vision. And I think, you know, voters having an array of choices in our democracy is a good thing. When did you talk? Uh, it was yesterday morning. I was about to take my daughter to, to, to the bus stop, and the phone rang, and uh, she was a little delayed in getting to the bus stop, but I told him I was proud of him and happy to head up uh, on weekends to New Hampshire to see what we could do to help. Give him any advice? No, and no, I didn't. I mean, he, he knows you know, what, what the process involves, uh, certainly having run twice for governor, oftentimes against political headwinds and polls that were not favorable. Uh, he's as good a hardworking retail uh, a, a politician as you'll meet, uh, and and in the next 90 days is going to have to engage in a lot of shoe leather to yeah. convince people in New Hampshire and South Carolina that uh, you know he's someone that they should consider. You know him better than just about anybody else, having been his running mate, serving with right. him in office. In your opinion, what is it that Deval Patrick has that will help him enter this Democratic field and really be able to stand out? You know, as I mentioned, he, he's a really good listener, and he's able to listen to various point, points of view, distill them, and then articulate a vision, a common vision that I think people can relate to, regardless of their backgrounds, where they come from. Um, and that, I think, is important right now. I think people are looking for, for someone that can help unify, but also lead and make decisions. And, and that's something that, uh, I, working with him, that he was not afraid to make decisions, not afraid of the political consequences of those decisions or how it might be perceived in the media. Um, you know, you're elected to lead and make decisions and he's never been afraid of that. He said he did have a hard conversation with Elizabeth Warren uh, the other night. Uh, when you do have several candidates from Massachusetts right. and New England, do you think it just makes it that much more challenging? Well, look, uh, you know, I don't think uh, this is about, and again, knowing him, this isn't a reflection on the other candidates. I think clearly for a couple of years, he's contemplated running for for president. And the family situation, uh, I think, preempted that from last year this time. 
thankfully, you know, for, for Diane and for the, the, the Patrick family, that's worked itself mm. out. But His wife had a bout with cancer. Yes, right. And she's healthy and, now. And she's healthy. Um, so this isn't, I think, a surprise in that sense. And, you know, he's been thinking about it. And But you so, don't think it casts doubt on the other Democrats in the race? Well, I, I mean, the fact that he was running, to, considering running last year when there was speculation of a whole host of candidates was about what he has to offer. I, I, I think he talks about a, a broad field. It's a qualified field. There's a lot of depth there. But he brings something that's unique. A two-term governor, someone who's worked in the private and public sector, worked in the nonprofit world uh, in a variety of different ways. A two-term governor during some very difficult times, the Great Recession, uh, moments of crisis with the marathon bombing. Um, somebody who had the foresight to invest in industries that are paying dividends in Massachusetts as we speak, the life sciences and biotech, green energy jobs, uh, education, innovation, infrastructure. So his record, I think, is unique and different than many of the other candidates. It's, it's not a disparagement in any way, I think, on the existing field. What motivated him to run is what he has to offer in his experience. Mm. A lot of people inside politics might say, oh, it's too late. Yeah. Well, he's never been afraid to lose. Uh, he's not risk averse. I, I think a lot of elected officials or pundits or advisors would say, you've got to have the money, you've got to have the organization. He does it completely the other way around. If he believes that he's got a vision uh, that uh, is important to him and will resonate with people and it's something that he wants to offer, he believes the other pieces will fall in place. That it happened when he ran, when no one knew his name in 2006. So uh, again, it comes to his, his message that he believes in and does he think it will resonate? And if he believes it will, the money and the organization will fall into place, though it is a challenge, no doubt. What do you think are the biggest accomplishments of his administrations here in Massachusetts that he should tout? Well, you know, the economy. Um, there, there's, there's the, we want to talk about, there, when you look around the country, there are clearly major sections of, the, of this country where people feel left out, that economic mobility is not there for them. And, you know, as a governor of Massachusetts, he governed the whole state, invested in every region of the state. Massachusetts has, you know, uh, gateway cities, which could be compared to Rust Belt cities in the Midwest. We're a much more rural state than sometimes people in Boston and Cambridge might think. So he governed the whole state. And when you think we led, Massachusetts was one of the first states to come out of the recession because of smart strategic investments in infrastructure, in education, in innovation. And so I think that record uh, is, is one that uh, I think will resonate. And I think it's a big piece. It's that economic security is something that uh, concerns people. Why do you think it is, though, when there is a nominee from Massachusetts, Americans from both parties seem reluctant to vote for that candidate for president? Well, you know, I, we've got a, several candidates that have come you know, very close, uh, whether it be you know, Mitt Romney, whether it be Mike Dukakis, uh, John Kerry. You know, so there's a tradition you know, of politics. I mean, as Governor Patrick said, America was invented here, and part of that was politics, compromise, and moving issues. So I guess it's in our DNA here. But, uh, you know, those elections were all fairly close, uh, at least in a couple of instances. And, um, you know, I don't... I think each election's different, uh, and each one of those respective candidates had different backgrounds and, and issues. Uh, so I don't think it's a Massachusetts thing. I think it's a case-by-case -case thing. If you, when you campaign in New Hampshire, or perhaps you'll head out to Iowa, other parts of the country on his behalf, 
For people unfamiliar with Deval Patrick, what's the word you'll focus on that they'll remember that identifies who he is? Well, you know, during whatever volunteer uh, work I do, I, th I think it's a leader uh, and someone who's a leader on a range of issues, someone who can make decisive decisions, but someone who's empathetic and understands those common things that, that we can all relate to, regardless of our background, uh, economic class, you know, color. Um, he's somebody who I think you know, is about that common, uh, common threads and issues that, that bring us together as, as Americans. And you know there will be people who will say, eh, wasn't that great, he just got elected in that second term, not nearly as popular as Charlie Baker. There were some flaws there during the Patrick administration. How do you think he'll respond to those criticisms? Well, I, you know, I think any administration has challenges and have, when you're running and managing big agencies uh, and state government, there are things that are gonna go bump. Uh, and that's happened with every administration in the history of Massachusetts uh, up to the present moment. Uh, but it's how you address those decisions, uh, respond to them, and not being afraid to make decisions as well. Uh, and that's something that he was not afraid to make decisions, whether the legislature liked it or not. He wasn't afraid to make decisions of whether the establishment community in Boston liked it or not. Uh, and I think people value that. You know, leading, someone is elected to lead, not just to be popular. And, and he can point to a legacy of things that were accomplished because of leadership. Life sciences and biotech, uh, green energy, transportation investments, decisions that were made to prove the MBTA. As we speak, locomotives and coach cars are being delivered. Um, uh, and I think the other element that, that makes him unique in some respects to kind of many elected officials or prospective candidates is he doesn't think in news cycles or political cycles. He's committed to the concept of generational responsibilities and that gener generational responsibility really guides his decision-making process. Mm. He just officially resigned from Bain Capital the day before yesterday. Do you think that's gonna be a tough uh, period of his life to defend since Wall Street and organizations like Bain are under such attack by people like Elizabeth Warren? Well, yeah, you know, as he has said, you know, when you take a job, you don't check your conscience at the door. And clearly what he was doing at Bain Capital is social impact investing, which is all about, yes, making a return on investment, but trying to do a public good, solve a public problem. But I, you know, would just say this, um, you know, when the Great Recession hit, um, the most vulnerable populations in Massachusetts were families that relied on that safety net. And and past other elected officials say one, two percent, three percent cut out of every department. He said no. We literally spent hours on end with Governor Patrick leading the discussion line item by line item through department budgets uh, for months at a time to protect those safety net programs to make sure that the most vulnerable in, this co in the Commonwealth who are going to be the most impacted by a great recession were, ta were taken care of as best as possible. So that's an example of you know, not checking your conscience at the, at the door. He didn't delegate that to someone, taking binders home at night, reviewing, coming back, convening meetings. So I always think of that um, moment when you know, tough decisions were made and it was we were going to protect the people that needed it the most. And so whether he's worked at Bain or worked in you know, the highest levels of you know, various corporations, uh, in that moment I think he showed to me and those that worked with him, you know, that he cared about people that were the most vulnerable. And I'm curious for you personally, because we had done an interview with you 
a couple of months after uh, you had had a car accident. There was an issue, uh, you know, during yeah. the first administration, which was difficult for you. That yeah. was a hard yeah. time in your life. How did he treat you? Look, I mean, he is, you know, a friend. You know, having, uh, you know, him having your back. You don't forget that, and you remember people and how they treated you in moments like that. And, you know, uh, he's a friend, and and you know, you remember uh, all of those things. And and uh, you know, and he's a special guy to me, not just as a leader, but as a friend. So he was there for you. Yeah. And supportive. I uh, know he noted that when you decided to leave the administration to come back here to Worcester right. to head up the Chamber of Commerce that he was happy for you personally but miffed professionally yeah. because you were leaving what was a good situation between the two of you. Yeah, I mean, when you run for lieutenant governor, I mean, it's a bit of, of a gamble. Um, you know, so much of the role is dictated by your relationship with the governor, you know, basically because of the Massachusetts Constitution. I mean, we hit it off early on on the campaign trail personally, I think style-wise. But at the end of the day, while you know, we maybe come from different places uh, and experiences, I think we shared kind of a common approach to governing. And uh, uh, I think he respected the fact that I had worked at the local level, worked with local officials, um, and you know, had an understanding of some of the Massachusetts political history. So it, it was a, a great partnership. And you know, leaving was very difficult, but um, you know, having a young family at the time an opportunity to kind of stay involved on economic development and, and public policy issues. Uh, you know, we've got a lot done at the chamber over the last six so and a half years. So he understood that. He understood, and uh, you know, I know on Wednesdays he missed me when the governor's council would meet, but it wasn't for too long. Great, excellent. Anything else you'd like to add about the campaign or what you plan to do? No, no, okay, I, no I'm great. just I'm, I'm You'll be there volunteering. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I, I can't afford to uh, <laughs> leave my job, nor do I, nor do I want to. Dr. Ned Hollowell is the author of the best-selling books, Driven to Distraction, Delivered from Distraction, and Because I Come from a Crazy Family. <laughs> He's also the founder of the Hollowell Centers for ADHD Treatment. Dr. Hollowell, thank you so much for joining us. Very nice to be we with you. We really appreciate having you on. It's an important topic. You yourself have ADHD. Yes, At I do. what point did you discover that? I'm proud of it. I, I had finished all my training, college, medical school, residency. I was doing a fellowship in child psychiatry back in 1981. I heard a description of this condition. I said, wow, that's me. And <laughs> what were some of the traits? Well, distractibility, impulsivity, tendency to have lots going on simultaneously, trying to keep track of it all. But what the standard definition left out and what I've really built my whole... Uh, work on is is saying there's a wonderful side to this. It's not just the the negative stuff. There's a wonderful side, and if you develop that, what is that wonderful side? Cr creative, entrepreneurial, mm. imaginative brain, always coming up with new ideas. Most entrepreneurs have this, mm. you know. So I say to people, I don't treat disabilities. I help people unwrap their talents, unwrap their gifts, and. If you frame it in that positive way, you get so much better results instead of thinking, I've got a deficit disorder mm. that I need to get treated. No, I say you've got, this is a marker of talent. Yes, it's got some rough edges that we need to work on, but it's in the, it, it's, it's so you can become a champion. And the model I use, I'd say to a kid, I said, you've got a Ferrari engine for a brain. You're really lucky. I love that. You've got a Ferrari up there. But you have bicycle brakes. Mm. But that's okay. I'm a brake specialist. Mm. So we strengthen the brakes, you win races. Now, not to say there isn't a downside. A Ferrari with bad brakes is dangerous. Crash and burn. But strengthen the brakes, 
then you're a champion. And one of the ways to strengthen the brakes is through medication. You've made headlines for saying that stimulant drugs are, quote, unbelievably safe. Drugs like Adderall, Ritalin, and some of the others that are used. Do you still feel that way about those drugs? As long as they're used properly, mm. they're safe. If they're not used properly, they're dangerous. But that goes for pretty much any medication. Well, I'm sure you've heard this, this new study from Harvard's McLean Hospital in Belmont. It says the amphetamine drugs that are yes. used for ADHD yes. treatment. That's Adderall. What are some of the others? Well, it, it, amphetamine is Adderall, Adderall XR, Vyvanse. Vyvanse. Yeah. Th there's a link between those and psychosis, uh, where there isn't with Ritalin and Concerta and some of those others. Uh, do you buy that study, and does that give you pause in prescribing Adderall and some of the other no, amphetamine see, drugs? The, it's the numbers that count. Just like saying there's a, a link between penicillin and death. Mm. Yes, if you have an anaphylactic reaction, you'll die. But that doesn't mean we go, oh, my God, penicillin is dangerous. It's going to kill people. Yes, uh, uh, amphetamine can cause psychosis, but how often? We're talking 1%. So... It's a risk-benefit analysis. Is it worth that tiny risk to get the potential benefit? And as long as it's done under medical supervision, even if that does happen, we can treat psychosis. You would know it right away. Exactly. Specifically, this study said 13 to 25-year-old patients, they are most at risk for developing psychosis from these amphetamine drugs used to treat ADHD. Again, it's a tiny number. It's a tiny number, but, but does, but it, it, does but it give you pause at all? Have you changed your practice at no, all? No, but it gives me, what it gives me pause is to promote public awareness so kids aren't out there selling it on the street corner. That's where it becomes dangerous, well, there are, there's, where there's no, there's no supervision. And, the, you know, they go to the black market uh, at every high school on every college campus. They buy and sell Adderall. That's what's dangerous. I was going to mention that. There's a lot of kids in college. When I was in college, this was happening. People Still were cramming, is, believe me. cramming for exams, cramming for essays, and they would take Adderall. You strongly recommend against that. Absolutely. I mean, you walk into the library at Harvard, at Tufts, at BC, at you, 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 by all means, can find places where it's well-known you can buy and sell Adderall, which is very dangerous. Mm. That's what people need to be cautioned against, not getting it from a doctor. Getting it from a doctor, and this is its so unfortunate that people are so afraid of it. If you get it from a doctor who knows what he or she is doing, then this medication is not only safe, it's wonderfully effective. It works like eyeglasses. So you can take someone who's struggling, barely getting by or, or underachieving, in school or at work in the case of adults and focus them and, the, and they get on the medication it's a total game changer I just treated an executive from Florida a woman who runs a huge agricultural business and after she started on the medication she called me she said I came to you expecting help but I had no idea how much mm. I now feel as if I had half my brain tied behind my back mm. Half my brain tied behind my back. What an image. She's, and she was doing well, but now she's doing so much better with less effort. Another analogy I use, untreated ADHD is like driving on square wheels. Boom, 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 boom. You get there because we tend to be very tenacious. But at what expense of effort? Mm. So if I can give you round wheels, and it's not just medication, by the way. It's education, sure. coaching, lifestyle changes. But if you can go from square wheels to round wheels, wow, you know, your whole life changes, not just 
education or profession, but uh, uh, interpersonal relations as well. We've seen such a dramatic rise in the U.S. of ADHD diagnosis. Is it just a diagnosis issue, or is there some other reason why we're seeing a, an increase? Well, the good news is it's education, so people are learning about it. Teachers, doctors, families, it's, people don't still really don't understand it. They don't understand the, the good side about it, which is what I'm trying to sure. help people understand. Uh, I think the, the, the thing to be careful of, I think there's a phenomenon of, of sort of pseudo-ADD. It's not the real thing, and it's caused by too many screens and not enough direct personal contact. So if you're a kid who only is in front of a screen, never has family dinner, never has a one-on-one -on -one conversation, you're going to look like you're, you have ADD because you'll be distracted, impulsive, hyperactive, antsy, impulsive. That's not true ADD. True ADD is genetic. You inherit it, the environment can exacerbate it or improve it depending on what the environment is like, whereas the pseudo-ADD is completely caused by the, by, by the environment. ADHD can obviously be frustrating for the person who has it, especially a child who hasn't yet figured out how to work with it, and it can be really frustrating for parents. So for anyone out there who's watching their child has ADHD, what's your advice for a parent who might have just learned this recently and is trying to figure out how to navigate that? Well, number one, never worry alone. Never worry alone. Find the right expert advice. You happen to live in the Boston area. There's a lot of us who really understand this. So find the, the right person to, to talk to. Obviously, you come see me in Sudbury. Go to Mass General. They have a great clinic down there. And there are many other practitioners. But try to see somebody who really understands it and takes a strength-based approach. Uh, as, as opposed to saying we're going to fix your deficit disorder. Mm. See someone like me who says we're going to strengthen the brakes so your Ferrari brain can win races, you know, the Ferrari brain with bicycle brakes. That's what you would, because then the kid jumps in enthusiastically. And it's also true. That model is exactly what this condition is all about. And, and, and you want to you wanna take advantage of the tremendous imagination, the tremendous power, and don't break down the kid. That's the real the, the real disorder is coming out of school feeling like you're stupid, right. you can't get your act together, you need more discipline, you're a loser. And that, those are the terms that these kids think in, in terms of it. They don't buy the euphemism. So they, you know, and they, if they get a real hammer job done on their self-esteem, that's terrible. That's the real disorder. So I come along and say, no, yes, you need some help, but it's to turn you into a champion. You've got a Ferrari brain with bicycle brakes. You need a brake specialist. But boy, oh boy, don't trade in that brain because there's gold in there. And most entrepreneurs have it. This country was built by people who have this trait. I don't think of it as a disorder. It's a trait. If you manage it right, it's an asset. If you don't, it can be terrible. This, this thing can be awful. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's all peaches and cream. It's not. It can ruin your life. Addiction, unemployment, early death even. But if you do take it seriously, if you do get the right help, then... The sky's the limit. You know, most entrepreneurs, Hollywood is full of it. Wall Street is full of it. You know, the, the creative dynamic, you know, just um, going a mile a minute. That's who, that's what this condition is. I love the way you've reframed it. Dr. Ned Hollowell, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate thank it. From the Hollowell you. Centers. And uh, good luck going forward with thank this you. practice. Thank you very much. We are. 
about to enter one of the most important competitions of the year. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> this is the WBZ Gingerbread House Competition, second annual gingerbread competition. Get the it's hose. the most enjoyable. Get the hose, Paula. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Liam. Go I, want, I want to set this up. First of all, I should say that Allie, our wonderful uh, social media yes. maven, is the one who came up with this idea last year. We she puts it, it together. She gets all the supplies. And... Kind what of a happened? sadist, aren't you? <laughs> Go ahead. What happened last year, the idea was several teams were put together to construct their own gingerbread houses. Yep. You had to come up with a concept, put the thing together. Mm-hmm. Paula and I, of course, were a team. David and Lisa were a team. And Chris and Kate, the morning anchors, were a team. And I don't. it says right here on the sheet that I'm not allowed to boast, but... And I what will says put good, it this what way. What says goodwill and joy to all more than a gingerbread contest, of right? Of course, yes. And I'll put it this way. Yeah. Um, the other teams did not win. Because I'm not allowed to boast. I will Here say the go. other teams did not win. And they yes. lost in dramatic fashion, landslide fashion. I don't know if any of them even got a vote, a single vote. Um, I believe they did. Yeah, they did. They I did believe they did. So let's let's cut the baby talk. Let's cut the baby talk, Liam. All right, you, Liam. Your really gingerbread waited. house. Let's, let's explain what we did. <clears throat> we did pander a bit, yeah. and we fashioned. The, As all good politicians sure, do. Yeah. Sure, sure. Uh, the home of New England sports. So the idea was that our gingerbread house was during the holidays, you're right. home, you're hunkering down to watch the Patriots game and hang your stockings, decorate your tree. We had Red Sox and Bruins and Celtic yeah. stuff. So we did pander to the sports fan a bit. And the coup de grace was Yeah, the what? coup de grace was that yeah. we were able to find a way to cut windows in the house and put lights inside the house. You'd have light emanating from our beautiful gingerbread house. Wow. We because actually, whose idea was that? That was Paula's idea. Of course. Well, th- I, just, I'm just I will say throw Paula me definitely is the brains of the operation. So, I like to say I'm the brawn. Uh, you know, I come, I had safety goggles on. I used the power tools. Now, because we had, let me tell you, we tried to cut power the windows tools. with an exacto. That has a double meaning in this context, <laughs> but go ahead. We tried to cut the windows at first with an X-Acto knife. Yeah. We found that the gingerbread... gingerbread too hard. Too brittle. Yeah. Too that brittle. It was cracking right mm. away. So what we found instead was a round drill bit. Yeah. Uh, and it got involved. It, it, yeah. We then attached that to an electric drill, and yeah. you ground away at the gingerbread over time, and we're able to create windows. Boom. Put the lights inside. Beautiful, gorgeous... Mm-hmm. Uh, light-filled gingerbread house. <laughs> Which was the winner. And, I, of course, we're explaining this in this context for any of our podcast listeners because, John, you must have fond memories of having oh, seen ver- it. Very much so. So, But uh, you said <laughs> you said uh, you were the winner. Let's yes, let's right. not hide our light under a bushel here, Paul. We were victorious. Your gingerbread house slaughtered the other gingerbread house. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, you I murdered the other it gingerbread It says I'm not allowed it, to boast, but... Mm-hmm. If I think the other ones, you could oh, say they were good. They were you, great ideas. You could were say your though? gingerbread house committed an atrocity <laughs> on the other gingerbread house. Fair. In the spirit of the season, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, no, we let's just say yeah. both both great concepts. Lisa and David. They did the um, WBZ did building. The WBZ, the TV station, which I would argue is not a house. And right. Chris and right. Kate wow. built the Zagan Bridge <laughs> with lights. Yeah. Also clever. Theirs was super uh, Also some sports themes. But 
Again, not a house. I believe, Allie, if you could weigh in here, yeah. the assignment was to create a gingerbread house right. for the contest. Right. The yeah. entire idea was to build something Boston-esque out of gingerbread. So oh, technically really? because it wasn't right, I a withdraw. House. Uh, well, Boston-esque like the Boston Massacre kind of. Let me rebut. <laughs> Let me rebut. The name of the competition is the WBZ Gingerbread House Competition. A valid point. Not the WBZ Gingerbread Zakem Bridge Competition. Boston-ish. Or the WBZ well. whatever building I want to build competition. <laughs> now, were you, when you were planning this and executing it, were you wearing bibs to catch the excess drool? Uh, I was I was actually in okay. a very sharp Mr. Rogers style cardigan. Yes. Because I wanted to be in the theme of, you know, the season. Blood red. Yeah, uh, no. Um, what color it's, was it's, it? It's got earth tones. It's yeah. Al Gore earth tones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, sort of, can I point one thing before you go, go on? Ahead. It's just that if you've noticed here, Liam is highly competitive and really enjoyed the crushing of the other teams, whereas I enjoyed the design and the building right. and the festive oh, creativity. So false. That no, is no, so no. False. You, I, do, you do, you do appreciate all that, and absolutely. But I am but one of the least. I'm one of the least. No, I'm not actually. Paula, is that fingernail polish, <laughs> or do you still have blood on your I hands? Have, I have singed fingertips from the glue gun. Well, well for both of you, uh, uh, Jonathan Case dug out some interesting research. Uh -oh. I'd like to share uh -oh. with you. Oh, I think boy. you might find edifying, and it might inform the way you handle this year's uh, grudge blood feud match, okay? Yeah, yeah. It's an article from Psychology Today about how to keep your cool with competitive people. Oh, wow. Um, you know, and it talks about why some people are so competitive. Mm -hmm. I mean, these will make perfect sense. Liam, fragile self-esteem. <laughs> I know that's been a big issue with okay. you over the Check. years. Check. Narcissism and sociopathy. Oh, I don't know about sociopathy. Um, Anyway, and, it, and it, gives, it gives advice on what to do. So, Ali, right. you might, as you have to deal with these people over the deal. coming weeks here, uh, it says if they are the insecure type, right, that, <laughs> that, that fits, praising their accomplishments and staying calm and friendly may make them see you as an ally or as less of a threat. <laughs> okay, so keep that in mind. If they are arrogant, and of course that doesn't apply to in this here, case, course, yeah. you may want to speak up and toot your own horn as well or change the subject when they start boasting. I've noticed my, my method here is just kind of take a little nap when, when they start in. Keep in mind, I'll wrap this up here, arrogant people tend to be narcissistic and status conscious. Mm -hmm. So if you exude confidence and appear to have high status and accomplishments, they're more likely to respect you. Mm. So... Uh, if he starts talking about his Harvard degree one more time, <laughs> you start talking about your PhD from Yale, I got all right? It. I got this it. year there'll be a big H on our building. No, um, uh, I should say last year, uh, speaking of competitiveness, mm. there was a ballot rigging situation, which was that there was a ballot box. It was a box. joke. It was a joke. <laughs> Jonathan was telling me to cut it, no. but I will just say that yeah. someone, I won't say who it is, but his name rhymes with a faded... Uh, shade uh, switched the ballot boxes in the newsroom so that some of the votes for Paula's and my building would go to theirs. Justice um, Jones. Now I notice Flavid Shade has been out sick the last couple of days. <laughs> Did you poison him, Liam? Or, Come on. Or is he secretly home 
assembling a oh, gingerbread house wow. on his time <laughs> so off. So paranoia kind of I setting wonder, in there, Paul? <laughs> I wonder what might be going on behind Flavious the scenes. Shade. And uh, this year we've added two new teams, the CBSN Boston team, yes. Andretis Rodriguez and Brianna Pitts, mm-hmm. and the weather team, Eric Zach, and Zach Green and Sarah, and Sarah, Sarah Robleski. Who you know there are some bakers in there. Yeah, so there are so two new teams this year. They're bringing a threat. Added in five full teams now, so mm-hmm. we'll see. What, we'll see what happens. But um, so we're in. For I know another, I have the ringer. At the end, we're of in the for another vicious <laughs> take no prisoners. Uh, yeah, blood on the carpet. Yeah. Uh, only one team walks out alive. But kind of tag smile. team steel cage event, right? Uh, Jonathan is asking, and this is a question for you, Allie. When can the audience see? The gingerbread house that we end up making. So it'll be on TV and on our Facebook page on mm. December 12th because mm-hmm. it is National Gingerbread House Day. Well, see, oh. there you go. Allie knows when all these days are coming up. Um, how can people vote? There is going to be a poll button at the end of the Facebook video, so everybody go watch and vote yeah. for so, your So can favorites. people vote more than once? They cannot vote more than once. <laughs> However, we will have ballot boxes in the office again, so that does not necessarily mean our colleagues cannot vote What twice. steps will be taken to ensure the integrity of the ballot yeah. box? Right. That's I was thinking of having I, you be security. Me? Yeah. <laughs> right. All, All right. right. So yeah. this is it. Um, vote early, vote often for Gingerbread House. Oh, yeah. It will be mm-hmm. up on the website. And if you love this podcast, which we know you do, Subscribe and share. Tell your friends about it. Tweet about us on Twitter. We're at Studio BZ Pod. I'm at Paula Evan. And I'm at Keller at Large. And I want to remind people who may be on the road over this Thanksgiving holiday or over the next few weeks traveling, uh, waiting in airports, bus stations. Uh, you can access, what, what is this, season four we have yes. a huge of Studio BZ. Everything that we've ever done is still as fresh and relevant today as it was the day we blurted it out. <laughs> so uh, please do go check it out. I hope you enjoy it. And I am at Liam WBZ. Have a great uh, Thanksgiving, everyone. Yes. We're going to have an episode next week. Before Thanksgiving? As far as I know. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I know. I had a little toddler boy who used to say it was adorable. Happy Skiving. Happy Skiving. So that's what we say in our house. Happy Skiving, everyone. Happy (laughs) Skiving. But we will be back with one more episode before Thanksgiving. And until then, we'll be seeing you. And go vote for a joint house. (laughs) (laughs) Case made me read this. It's not my idea. Are you?